0: Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien from Goldsmiths, University of London. On this episode, I'll be talking about Performing Policy, How Contemporary Politics and Cultural Programs Redefined U.S. Artists for the 21st Century by Paul Bonin-Rodriguez. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'll be talking to Paul Bonin-Rodriguez, who is Assistant Professor in the Department of Theatre and Dance at the University of Texas, Austin, about his new book, Performing Policy. How Contemporary Politics and Cultural Programs Redefine U.S. Artists for the 21st Century. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Um, It'd be great to hear a little bit about um, your background uh, as both um, a creative practitioner and also as an academic, um, because this, I think, will set the context for how the book came to be written.
1: Sure. I write a lot about it in the prologue of the book. Um, and I have a very disparate uh, background in the arts, um, and it's even sort of bigger than I, I actually paint in the book. I was um, first trained as a dancer, and I danced for a number of ballet companies. Uh, and this was in during the 1980s. Uh, there was the oil. Boom and crash, and uh, the nonprofit sector underwent a lot of shifts. And I was managing to pick up enough work to get by, but I was, you know, just barely scraping by. Uh, at one point, I took a master's degree in communications and became a television producer for public TV. And once again, I was in the nonprofit sector, raising money, uh, writing press, uh, and producing and writing documentary segments. And then I um, somehow in the editing room, uh, getting when you edit eight hours of tape into about eight minutes of a segment, you realize what is the essential story and what trauma is. And I started writing performance Uh, at first, solo queer performance, because I just didn't have anybody else to put on stage. And, you know, uh, by the time I had written it, it was probably already time to go on stage. I had made some promise. So. Um, my career took off very fast. I toured for about 10 years nonstop. I just went through that list and it was pretty exhaustive, uh, throughout the U.S. and into Canada. Um, I wrote serial works at first. I also, during that time, went back and started a dance company and then created a number of collaborative works. And I also wrote and produced plays. So during a period of about, uh, I want to say 18 years, I produced 18 new works, uh, In 2001, which is somewhere in the middle of all this, I uh, was facing a lot of debt from a health crisis, and I couldn't get health insurance. And um, I began to wonder why I had not been prepared to really think through questions about the market and sustainability. Uh, Much of my time when I was a touring artist and making really good money on the road, much of my time in San Antonio, where I live, where I've always lived, uh, well, I've lived for the last 28 years. Um, much of that time was spent sort of donating back to the nonprofit sector and to my fellow sort of cultural organizations and my colleagues. And so I was running a debt there. Uh, and I began to think, what is sort of an equitable balance between sort of what I earn and what I give back Uh, what were the market demands uh, to which I could live up to and sort of take something back. But then what was also a keen understanding of the nonprofit sector and its needs, as well as the community sector. And how could I put it all together in a comprehensive picture? And I think somewhere during that time, I began performance studies, a doctorate in performance studies. Um, It was a great program. I was studying under Jill Dolan, who's a feminist scholar. Uh, I, Loved the work, um, but it was also sort of close to home. My partner owns an art gallery, and we've had it for 28 years. So uh, I had this other, you know, reason to be near uh, San Antonio. Uh, Austin's only 80 miles away. So um, I began my study thinking that I would do what a lot of my colleagues did, which was write about performance and representation, study performance. That was my original intent. But as I sat in the room with colleagues, each time we came to looking at a new piece of work, um, I always felt there was one element we needed to discuss. And that was what were the systems of support that went into this particular play? Um, You can't discuss, for me, you can't discuss uh, a streetcar named Desire without talking about it as part of a long development process. You know, you can't just think of it as a canonical script. You have to think of all the supports that went towards that artist, all the edits, all the revisions, all the sort of runs, and and what that meant in terms of that artist and that status. And I began to see how often we more or less um, abstract the whole process. And so by the time we do performance analysis, I, I feel that, you know, we really need to be looking not just what we're seeing on stage, but the numbers And the support's behind it. And who's the motley crew that contributes? Uh, And somewhere in that time, when I became involved, I, you know, picked up the investing in creativity study, which we'll talk about. I knew that leveraging investments in creativity was starting. And I went to the president of the board and I said, I want to be involved somehow. I, you know, just, I had already been organizing on a national level, serving on the board of organizations. So I just sort of threw myself into a policy arena as an artist and a scholar. And, you know, what I did in that area,
0: I brought back to performance studies. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of evolution, I think, of um, both your your own particular work and life experience, but also um, within the academy wanting to push analysis, uh, Mm -hmm. text and performance beyond almost even uh, the social, cultural um, or social economic circumstances um, of a text or a performance, but but to really get behind the kind of political economy uh, mm-hmm. that, that allows particular works to be produced and also in turn shuts down um, other works as well. And right. That sense of self, I think, um, I mean, I, I might have read the book uh, wrong, but I think carries through into one of the core concepts that you talk about, which is the idea of the artist-producer, a kind of a hybrid concept that's really important to mm-hmm. the book. So I wonder if you could talk through that idea. Sure. Um, I want to say first
1: that I feel like the idea of a, of a hybrid concept, which was already being advanced, um, I think Maria Rosario Jackson has mm-hmm. a study called Hybrid Careers that will come out shortly. Uh, it's it's sort of a last effort for Link, although it closed in 2013, and she's written about it some, but uh, she defines it as um, artists working at the intersection of their aesthetic practice and some other uh, function or public purpose, uh, work in the public sector. Okay, so um, I see it originally. If I if I go even back further, I see that hybrid. Thinking and hybrid careers is really a way to address that sort of old cultural economics concept of the idea that, you know, the artist has the um, creative job and the day job, and they use the day job to effectively pay for the creative job. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the hybrid career is a way to sort of merge the organizational capacity – with the creative capacity, but it's also responding to a really strong push put forth in sort of the wake of the culture wars in the United States, um, during the 1990s, uh, which as I point out, you know, is an earlier version of today's culture wars, um, you know, in which there's a focus on instrumentality and public purpose, um, and, you know, one might see this as sort of a product of neo- neoliberalism and the individuation of labor uh, uh, that, you know, it's it's requiring artists to sort of make their own way. Uh, you could also put it, you know, uh, or tie it directly to the nonprofit sector struggling during that time and more and more nonprofits leaning on artists to more or less be effective partners and producing partners and. Um, sort of increasing reliance that they carry the burden of running the show and bringing the audience. And, um, you know, also it's more or less what the U S grant system apply, you know, uh, you know, the artist who writes the grant is doing the budget, the organization, the everything. Uh, so that's sort of the other sort of hybrid practice. So I really wanted to articulate sort of all these ideas that had come together and sort of been put forth in various ways. Um, So I did go right to a hyphenate um, construct of the artist hyphen producer. Uh, One person, you know, recognizing that an artist is equal part artist and then equal part organizer. Uh, I want to point out that my intent wasn't just to sort of belabor the artist even more, but to sort of make evident the importance of artistic work at this point, uh, and to also show that it should convey a certain amount of status.
0: Yeah, and this is a kind of uh, ongoing question throughout the book about what policy does um, to either enable this um, this hybrid concept, or as you've you've touched on already, to kind of demand that it exists but not to recognise it, not to give any institutional support, and not to give any um, either aesthetic or, or social status. And it, it, it's it's a really interesting way of kind of analysing. Uh, both the policy formations and, and the actual policy documents that you you get into in in the text, um, the first of which and, and the kind of the opening moments of of, of the book in the second chapter is um, the arts and the public purpose, which which touches on a whole range of things that were going on in um, American cultural policy uh, at the time. And I'm I'm interested to hear about your analysis in terms of what that meant for American cultural policy because you talk about it as being a bit of a of a shift, but also about um those um uh, that were absent from the discussions.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh the artist absence
0: from the discussion? Yes.
1: yes. Well there were artists present and they were very well established artists, uh playwrights, uh uh choreographers. You know, my mind is blanking right now, but I can uh it's it's there. Um so, but to a certain extent, I, I, how I work, how I look at this or, um, particular meeting is as a scenario of cultural policy. Um, and it even recommends at one point that a few artists should be invited into all future discussions. That's one of the fi- you know final recommendations is that this idea that we're going to train a small circle of artists. Um, and if you look at that particular recommendation, sort of the implication is that we're going to go back to some of the original ideas in the um, founding of the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, Michael Brunson writes so beautifully about this, but, you know, in his search through the archives, he finds Gifford Phillips and uh, this uh, trustee uh, from, I guess, the Phillips Collection or Phillips Foundation. And and, uh, he says that, you know, artists should be supported so they can be left free to do their beautiful work, right? And that's a very romantic notion of the artist uh, at that point. And I, I... kind of see traces of that sometime in the assumption that not every artist is going to somehow be invested in the policy circumstances. Um, That all said, I had seen the arts and the public purpose in multiple reports, uh, annotated bibliographies, uh, you know, other sort of articles mentioned as one of the key moments in the culture wars. Uh, When I went back to the document, I saw it indicative of sort of the zeitgeist of the era. And sort of a very strategic political document that reframes the nature of the debate during the culture wars of the 1990s. Uh, Moving away from this question of, you know, should the governments be supporting to the arts to the uh, bigger question of what is it that the arts accomplish and contribute to the United States? Um, So there are a few important things to look at. First is who is in the room. What's really fascinating about this report is that many of the people who sort of, well, the people who actually begin the journey that becomes the studies and the initiatives that we see in the uh, first decade of the 21st century, as well as even now, are all there. Uh, Some of those reports are already gone. And actually, you can trace back... uh, this is a long history, Uh, you can trace back some of the early studies on cultural indicators in community, this idea that uh, there was a study of community well-being going on or about to go on. And um, Alberta Arthurs, who was uh, program director at the uh, Rockefeller Foundation, uh, got a call from a gentleman at the Urban Institute who said, look, they're about to do this sort of study here at the Urban Institute, which is a nonpartisan think tank, about, you know, what contributes to a, a healthy community. And there is no inclusion for arts and culture. So Rockefeller got behind and began funding that part of the study. They identified Maria Rosario Jackson. And sort of that first works on the um, social, uh, sort of social policy, art. it's uh, so policy. Policy, arts, and research and culture, or the quote, you know, became uh, or led into investing in creativity, the next study. So, Maria's in the room. Uh, Alberta Arthur's is planning this event. You've got former and chairs of the National Endowment for the Arts. You have foundation people. You also have artists who have been really resistant to these types of organizational meetings. Um, And they're all coming together. Uh, There's a set of very clear, Uh, sort of observations of what's happening in the United States, and there's also a really clear strategy about how to take forward the idea that the arts are important. And they aren't just about instrumentality. They're about recognizing heritage and giving heritage awards regularly. Uh, They are about bringing artists into the room to do this work in some respect. Um, They're about making sure that, you know, public purpose is put forth uh, in all meetings. There's also sort of a great call for crossover and the fact that, you know, people might, we might really study the nonprofit sector, the commercial sector, and the community sector, and I guess the government sector, and see how they intersect and how artists work within them. So, if you read the document and you think through that everything that's happened since, you see it that it's really prescient. Um, I do want to point out that when I was doing the study and I was, or you know, analyzing the study. Um, I was getting resistance from some people who had contributed to some major initiatives who said that's not the only moment. And I tried to make that very clear in the book, that it's indicative of a type of organization and a political project that points to the picture we're looking at now. But it has deep ties to the people who have done that work since. Many of them, but not all of them. I think the only other thing to point out... um, and this has to do with the history of cultural policy in the United States in the 20th century especially, but um, it's done at Columbia University. It's part of a very sort of focused, established process, which I analyzed through sort of performance studies, uh, Deanna Taylor's uh, use of scenarios. Um, And I I show how it represents sort of a high-status, Cultural and intellectual institution making an intervention, at the same time proposing that there's greater investment from, you know, uh, the broader polity.
0: And in some ways, we can we can contrast that, uh, if we might call it a kind of a, an elite story in terms of its institutions, um, its individuals, and its um, connection to to policy with um the case study you you examine in the third chapter which is the austin new works theater community documents uh, mm-hmm. and it's i suppose it's kind of um it struggles around funding um and some of which you know might be read almost successfully despite um not not getting uh the money
1: um yeah, so you know this has been a, a sort of something significant that's happening in the United States, but there's been a big focus on how artists are not necessarily going, you know, organizing as nonprofits. That there's these loose associations that they're working in the community sector, but also occasionally using the nonprofit status. Right?
0: Mm-hmm. This, this
1: is happening in England as well.
0: It, it, it's it's slightly different, but um yeah. the, the kind of the quest for effectively new models is is now central, I think, to uh, to, to the way government is, is making, um, is interacting with the cultural sector.
1: Right. I located this initiative because as part of my job, just, pleasure. I go to try to go to theater in Austin as much as possible. And and part of what I've brought to curriculum at the University of Texas is this idea that, you know, while you're training here, one of your jobs is to have a strong orientation to a local theater community, to Austin's, you know, theaters um, as sort of a rehearsal for a future scenario where you settle, which may not be New York, LA, San Francisco, (laughs) which may be Omaha, Nebraska. Do you know what I mean? So I, I want them to do that. And so here was this initiative, um, and it was put forth by someone from a sort of later chapter, but, you know, a creative capital grantee uh, who lived in Austin, who now has a wonderful company. I, I think she took a strong sort of central role at the beginning of organizing, and that's Katie Pearl, who's um, probably known for her work with the playwright Lisa Damore, and they have their company, Pearl Damore. Um But, you know, it was this association of artists. It was also sort of... Um, Some other well-known companies, especially the Rude Mechs, uh, were getting some national attention. But um, during the, uh, let me see, in 2000, 2003, David Dower, who's now with HowlRound, which is one of our sort of uh, commons, a theater commons, um, uh, began a study of the new work sector in the United States and how new plays were being brought forward. And this sort of was part of what became a big focus on the development of new work from cultural policy and philanthropy in theater specifically. Austin was targeted as one of the cities and the specific manifestation of support here was a loose collective of essentially competitive theater companies coming together to figure out their future. And what was so fascinating to me about this story was that it sort of replicated experiences in my own past of, I started a nonprofit dance umbrella Uh, back in the 90s um, to support dance in San Antonio. But uh, also that idea of artists, you know, let's not just put on a show, but let's put on sustainability, right? And so with funding and support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which was, you know, really generous and wonderful and, and really some guidance as well, they spend about two to three years thinking through what would be a perfect scenario for a future. Now, here's what's really interesting. Through their focus groups and discussion and dialogue, they essentially replicate a lot of studies and programs that are going on to a sense they are performing policy at the same time. the breadth of their analysis, their need for you know babysitting and health insurance, what you know is called an investing in creativity material support, yeah. uh, their recognition of a space uh, issues in Austin especially again a material support uh, their feeling that they are sort of uh, You know, isolated in some ways, which is the need for, you know, markets and demands as well as community and networks, again, from investing in creativity. All of the things they identify replicate other policy initiatives going on in the US. Now, when you put an artist driven sort of thing together with a sort of a request and you put it next to a national picture in which this is really kind of already being done, but just maybe not done in the city, I don't, I think it sort of pales in comparison. I think oftentimes policy and philanthropy are moving forward with, we've already done that, mm. and this is kind of an old model. Um, furthermore, because the auditors do this on essentially donated, discounted labor, their own time, just give back, give back, give back, you know what I mean? They get really burned out in this process. What happens is you get this really amazing uh, analytical document, a really clear sense, some better relationships, and, you know, deeper relationships among the Austin artists, but ultimately not final support. Now, I still consider that whole process to be really successful. And I don't have any, you know, I think the foundation was amazing to do the work. I think what it's really going to take, and this is where the document sort of failed to think through is how are the artists, how is someone or some particular organization, particularly a service organization going to look at that document with a keen eye on what's available as a resource right now in policy and philanthropy and sort of pursue those rather than the whole picture and how might those manifest greater purpose and a sort of greater, you know, opportunity for people. I will tell you also, though, you know, if anything has happened since then, um, its space has become even more difficult because Austin has just had massive growth. And uh, it is so expensive to live here now. It's one of the most expensive places in the nation. So um, the Austin New Works Theater community... As they called themselves did this amazing project, but it was also indicative of a moment when artists are performing policy, but without the status or the invitation into other bigger national projects right, and the way you know a sort of a clear eye on how to efficiently you know sew this into a national picture while still making art it 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 would appear to stall for a minute,
0: you know. Yeah. It's it's an interesting um, I think vision of um, the broader role of the artist, as you say, you know, doing a whole range of um, performing policy, and yet still, you know, having their artists kind of front and center of of their jobs and and what they do. And I think this reflects something uh, that, that that you take on in uh, in in the fourth chapter, actually, around what the kind of vision is in particular bits of policy um, and its relationship to philanthropy for the role of the art, both against the backdrop of the culture wars, but also a kind of a a neoliberal capitalist vision for what the art should be doing. And and you do this by discussing the Creative Capital Foundation. Um, So I think it'd be interesting um, to think through that story uh, about what it tells us about the role of the artist. Right. It's, it's
1: probably helpful to point out right now that in, I, um, in my writing about entrepreneurship, uh, I've been a really cautious user of that term. Yeah. I, I think in the United States, it, it does have a great history and connection to sort of the uh, origins of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah. it's clearly something that Ronald Reagan revives to sort of describe workers who are being set free from a social safety net and that George W. Bush picks up you know, and I, I, you know, Clinton is in that group too. I'm you know, the, the work fair idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's across party lines, right? Um, so it's interesting to me that how often, and this is something that creative capital does, they, they use entrepreneurial really more as an adjective, as a type of practice that, uh, sort of reflects what they do. Um, Here's what's fascinating to me about this organization. Number one, it is one of the first to jump out of the gate um, to sort of respond to the culture wars, um, not just from the standpoint of public purpose, but also from the idea of maintaining support or reviving support for the individual artist. Okay, so they're going to jump into the political fray. There's strong support from Arch Gillies at the uh, Warhol Foundation. They really see the artist as deserving of support and that, you know, if we look at the history of the endowment, what we really see – the National Endowment for the Arts – what we really see is – Artists had pretty much informed the whole process of its creation, not through the just the peer panel, but the post-peer panel discussions in which they, you know, speak to policy and what we should be doing, you know. Um, so there has been a tremendous give back and investment of artists already sort of contributing to policy, right? So creative capital starts in 1999 at the same time that really the study Investing in Creativity, which we'll talk about in a minute, um is getting started, but they decide they're going to go with, you know, development first and research behind it. You know, a reverse. What's cr- really interesting to me, and I, I think this is really uh, or important to talk about, is yes, it can be read as ascribing to sort of capitalist model. What's really more important is to see how it is specifically using different forms of capital and layering different forms of you know, social and cultural capital into artist practices so that you know, to lay bare or make evident really what I'm saying simply as sort of the status and importance of being an artist and the deservedness Of actually getting support or remuneration for that work, um, but also the investment in it. Creative Capital's grant program really is one that imagines the artist, in my opinion, as an artist producer. Uh, You know, the the grant structure, uh, uh, you know, has you sort of imagine the artist, imagine the project. sort of identify the collaborators, put it forth. They get seed money to start the project. But while they're doing it, it's using a very venture capitalist model. The organization is bringing in other resources, supports the, you know, the input of market professionals, as well as artistic professionals and colleagues to help the artist through it. They're providing training and professional development. Um, they're coupling it with other services, so much so that, you know, that first ten or, you know, a thousand that the artist gets is, is later, you know, multiplied five times, you know, often. Um, so, um, and uh, you know what? I'm not getting the numbers exactly right now because there are exact numbers mm. uh, from Creative Capital. But You know, and in the process, they're not only demonstrating sort of the forms of social capital that are apparent, but also the cultural capital that artists are accumulating through the processes and the deep ties they are making to community, to presenters or other producers, and especially the ways that they're co-producing. I want to point out, too, that, you know, creative capital doesn't demand that it just be one artist. Uh, it's interesting, the Austin Rude Mex, which is a local theater company sort of that has done tremendous work and toured a lot in the United States, uh, off-Broadway run, I think, last year. Um, they, uh, they've toured a lot in Europe as well. Um, they uh, went in as a collective, right? Um, one of my key ideas in, in the uh, idea of promoting the artist-producer is that, really, this hyphenate structure should indicate that, you know, it doesn't have to land on one person, you know, uh, the artist as artist producer must always know the organizational requirements, but they can identify a co-producer. They can, you know, sort of take that piece off and hand it to someone and say, let's work in an equitable, collaborative way. But I have a clear understanding of what you need for me so that we can not only, you know, garner support for this work, uh, as we're building it, but promote it thereafter. Um, Creative Capital uh, is a – the Creative Capital Foundation is something of a – they call it a false foundation because it's not an endowment that's just supporting artists. They're raising money every year to a certain extent. They're a grant service organization uh, to continue their programming, which has expanded immensely. If you look at the nature of what they grant over the years, you'll find that actually – and this is what's really funny – the grantees become increasingly indicative of a type of public purpose that supports a really progressive democracy. So, uh, you know, you've got... um an artist who is, you know, making burial suits for a green burial in which a body is wrapped in sort of this mushroom fungus and ultimately turned into compostable material. Uh, You've got the yes men doing these really radical, wonderful sort of uh, interventions on punditry, um, making public appearances, uh, you know, challenging corporations. You've got uh, the uh, filmmaker, uh, Laura Poitras, who I think did the film on Edward Snowden, uh, uh, doing work on, uh, uh, you know, more or less our military operations. Uh, you've got a lot of sort of artists who've really done some important work. So even though they start with development, uh, and go into research, uh, they or have the two in hand, hand, in hand all the time. They ultimately sort of resonate with this kind of public purpose notion that is really part of our policy picture at this point.
0: I think the other part of the the, the policy picture, as you describe it, is about place, um, mm-hmm. and, and and this is a really kind of major um, issue. Um, and I think this comes together in chapter six um, and mm-hmm. chapter seven as well, both in the story of uh, investing in creativity but also in the idea of uh, creative placemaking. So I wonder if you could tell that uh, story of um, investing in, in creativity and link it to, um, to creative placemaking.
1: Sure. Well, the investing in creativity study, you know, it finds its origins all the way back in 1997 um, with that moment when the Rockefeller foundation supports the Urban Institute's study of, you know, the role of arts in community. Um, And at that point uh, they identify Maria Rosario Jackson at the Urban Institute to sort of take on these studies. And it becomes a series of uh, five reports on arts and communities. Um, And then uh, around two thousand. 2001 2 as the Ford Foundation is making some major shifts. Uh, uh, there's a call put out from the president for new ideas in arts and cultural policy and a really wonderful, uh, intelligent uh, program officer who's at the um, Lila Wallace Reader's, found, uh, Reader's Digest Foundation um puts forth an idea, two ideas, and, and one in particular is a study of the system of supports for U.S. artists. So Maria is identified for the study. Um, Polly Sidford is the person who sort of puts forth the idea and plays sort of a guiding role in it independently. Uh, The study takes about three years. Uh, It takes place in nine different communities, and then there's a rural composite. And out of that study becomes some very specific domains of how artists are actually, or or what I'm saying, what artists require for comprehensive support. Um, So the six domains are, Uh, Validation, demands and markets, communities and networks, material supports, training and professional development, and then information. Um, During the study, there are interventions already being made. There's the development of the NIFA source, which is really the artist one-stop shop for all grants and opportunities uh, for artists. Um and it is sort of born from the fact that uh out of New York there is a um there's a program in which you know they're they're sort of creating a database of artist opportunities and it, it's built onto there. Uh so investing in creativity sets forth these domains, you know, we're we really as as the sort of the team made clear, hard one. Um they were determined from not only surveys but focus group discussions. Uh, about what was going on um, and uh, in the United States and what artists felt they need. And, you know, each of the areas was really comprehensive. If you look at the um, report, it identifies itself as, you know, practical, imperial, empirical, practical, and, oh, there's a third. Mm, that'll come back to me. Uh, Don't worry. <laughs> but what they're saying is, you know, We're going to, uh, really sort of make an intervention at this point, um, in what's going on. So, you know, the study makes possible new ways of reading programs that are already working. If you look at creative capital, if you backtrack and look at what creative capital is doing, they're, you know, basically taking care of all of those areas with a particular focus on training and professional development, uh, Demands and markets, communities and networks, and especially validation—it all begins with validation. Um, so, investing in creativity is sort of really, sort of a catalytical moment in cultural policy. It's published in 2003. Holly Sidford who had initiated the study with her idea, was not ready to stop. She wanted to turn it immediately into an initiative in which these ideas could be put into practice. She put forth a very radical, expansive program um, called Wellspring, which I would like to write about at some point. It is more expansive than you could imagine and and really visionary, Um, and what she finds support for, initially from the Ford Foundation, is for the idea of leveraging, invest, investing in, leveraging investments in creativity, a 10-year initiative dedicated to improving the lives of artists in the United States, in which the domains will be addressed systematically and new opportunities will be put into place, specifically in those communities that first participated in the study since we have the research now let's try to develop programming um, so link uh, not only did it sort of create programming do contribute to sort of organizational stabilization and growth um, created new opportunities for artists set up a whole new network of training and professional development programs, many of which are now sort of revenue generators for those communities across the nation uh, but um, It also did a number of research studies, uh, including... uh crossover which shows how artists move across sectors in their careers uh so an artist in the commercial sector is likely at some point to go over to the community sector and contribute in some ways to get that reward that comes from you know being an artist uh working directly with community artists and nonprofits oftentimes will move over to commercial work in order to make a living um you know or to do better so there, there's some amazing reports throughout that uh even during the uh, economic recession, a wonderful report that brought forth the data of, you know, sort of when an artist spends about 80 percent of their time making their art, they generally make, you know, considerably more and actually make a living. And so a lot of this data was really important. But more so than that was the sort of support to specific organizations and targeted communities. Um, a lot of them be because they were addressing changing demographics, were specifically in communities that had historically been marginalized in an arts and cultural funding policy picture that focused on the high arts and the elite. So there was considerable support and intervention made in the First Nation, Native American communities, um, in Latino and African American and Asian American communities. Um, we saw a lot of new importance and change. And a lot of these organizations are doing and have continued to do amazing work since.
0: And w- w- <clears throat> excuse me, within that, um, th- there's also, uh, I think, a recognition that, as you you draw out, that these are not communities that are, you know, just kind of floating around in in, in space as it were. You know, these are kind of bounded by um, particular places in, in, in particular regions or, or cities, and, and linking together. You know, what you're talking about uh, with Austin carries mm-hmm. over, um, I think, into into chapter seven. You know, with with this kind of sense of the importance and role um that an artist producer can have when they produce policy in, in places and maybe that might uh, be quite a good place to uh, to conclude on if, if you give your thoughts on what uh, what the role um of artist public policy and, and place could be sure
1: so I, I want to point out first of all that everything i've looked at was In a sense, a catalytic program Mm. that really sort of you can find connections in subsequent research and development programmatic initiatives uh, in specific communities. You can find some connection. Um, And I want to say, first of all, why I would even promote the idea of performing policy. I think it's terribly important that artists understand the amount of investment that has gone into their work. And to their possibility, and that whenever they are part of an initiative, they see the line of funding and support and the history of funding and support so that they recognize where a future opportunity might come, but also so that they have just a greater sense of their importance at this point um, and you know I 'm saying there I should point out our since I yeah, identify course. as an yeah. artist um so uh i just want to backtrack a bit and point out that you know the arts and the public purpose gave rise to a number of other arts-based studies that you know picked up the idea of you know the different market sectors which link would later take on
0: yeah link's
1: work is you know evident in a number of programs that are happening now and, yeah, uh, you, you know can so see these the, are all ongoing
0: you can see so. the echoes of this in um the nea's how art yeah. works work you know the, the kind yeah. of You can see the evolution even, you know, in in the last kind of year, 18 months or so.
1: Right. So here's what happens. Um, One of the recommendations in the arts and the public purpose is that, you know, uh, the arts should find their foothold in all parts of the government as well. And it's it's interesting that, you know, by the time we've done sort of the analysis of the systems of support, uh, we've seen more and more evidence of artists' contributions to community. Uh, more and more programs have put artists in touch with communities. You see that, you know, during the leadership of um, Rocco Landisman at the National Endowment for the Arts, um, with, I should point this out, um, the uh, deputy chair is Joan Shigakawa. Who was actually the person who took over from Alberta Arthur's during uh, Rockefellers at Rockefeller um, during the period of those first studies uh, that were taking place or or that took place at the Urban Institute? Um, it was Joan Chiconkawa who actually had a real origin in looking at the role of arts in community and had actually said this was said to me, by Maria, you know, this is work is going to take two decades. So it's interesting that two decades later, she's a deputy chair of the NEA. She's working with Rappu Landesman, a well-known theater producer who comes from the commercial sector, who wants the arts to have all opportunities. And the NEA starts making Cabinet-level partnerships in all cabinets at at, at the level of government. So partnerships in Department (laughs) of Defense, partnerships in Housing and Urban Development, the idea that artists actually have a role to play in community. Um, One manifestation that comes forth uh, is the idea of creative placemaking, the idea that artists have a role to play in community development. Um, And, you know, this was, remember, the impetus for the very first study, you know, that artists were being sort of, the arts were being left out of the idea of, you know, uh, what makes comprehensive community development. So they got this idea, we're going to do this program, and we're going to show how artists essentially make communities important places to live, um, but also places where people can grow, where democracy can be sort of vital, where we're sort of an engaged public sector that, you know, life is not just, you know, uh, pillar to pot as it were, um, you know, that that, that life is actually something bigger and that uh, we are actually bringing cultural practice into the mix. Creative placemaking takes place in several forms. Uh, I think at the endowment, there are a number of programs such as, you know, museum programs dedicated to keeping the spaces open for veterans and their families or, you know, making them free and available uh, for people working in armed services to sort of education programs, uh, you know. But, you know, also working with mayors and, you know, people across the nation to support specific projects through the Our Town program. The NEA also plays a big role, and this is something I've not mentioned before, but almost all of these efforts have been consortium efforts. Uh, Investing in Creativity and Link, Investing in Creativity has 38 major foundations, including the National Endowment for the Arts, playing a part. So you've got the public and private sector or I should say the you know, philanthropy from public and private sector coming together to support that work. Um, we have a separate initiative in the United States, another 10-year initiative you know, in the manner of LINC, um, which is uh, ArtPlace America, which is uh, you know, eight federal agencies at the cabinet level, including the National Endowment for the Arts, as well as six banks – and 15 major philanthropies, not even a nonprofit. It is a project of these organizations that is creating new opportunities for arts and culture to take a central role in the development of uh, community or communities in the nation. Um, I traveled for Art Place America in the spring and served as an evaluator. And, you know, I, I even went to Kitalina, Alaska, which is getting a lot of place, you know, sort of talk in the news, um, and which has gotten support from the organization. It's, it's public now. Um, you know, artists are at the center of helping this particular Native community um, plan creatively and through culture and the recognition of culture that includes a knowledge of the land, of tradition, of people, of hunting, of you know why people even came to this area, and then how they were later settled from the uh, by the missionaries. But that's included in the sort of um, the whole project of helping the Native Americans uh, who live in that community, the Inupac, or part of an Eskimo tribe, um, sort of determine where they need to live. Um, and do the planning work that will ultimately cost considerably more because the island where they live now and where they were settled uh, by Alaska becoming a state and the missionaries um, is now sinking, you know, and so Kivalina is now becoming, uh, you know, a test case for all the islands that are facing, uh, you know, the deluge at some point. So, you know, Art Place America is advancing this idea that artists have a pl- critical role to play in community. The question I raise in that chapter is, okay, we have a long history of grant projects with a short term um, and artists have made a long history of you know basically I'm producing I'm performing one show, making my money on it, I am rehearsing another show. I've got a certain amount of revenue generated for that, and I'm thinking from performance. And I am planning for a future show, the three-year cycle, right, of work. Mm. How is our investment in this idea of community development anchoring artists into the process? And how do these programs rehearse a scenario in which artists become more and more cognizant of what their contributions are and the community becomes much more open to long-term support.
0: I mean, we've, there's lots of stuff we haven't even touched on in the book. I mean, there's, a, there's a chapter that, that deals directly with this in terms of uh, how artists, uh, artists, producers might be educated and, mm-hmm. and then you, you know, you're kind of it engage with the um almost the the, the kind of the on-campus or classroom perspective but i think to close with it it, it'd be interesting to know um on that that last question where where are you going next Uh, are you thinking in terms of um developing performing policy um as as a kind of ongoing agenda you know is it something you you might come back and and kind of do another performing policy uh, style book in 10 years um or are you moving on to completely different things
1: I'm not moving on to different things. I think it's important as an artist that I, I get back to that at some point soon in some way. Mm. And especially given my use of hyphenates, it'd be a really collaborative way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No more solo shows. Um, secondly, um, I, I, to touch on the education part, I, I really am um, enamored with the humane, humanities education, critical thinking, you know. Yeah. But an understanding of history, of philosophy, of thought, you know, Um, and as I sort of explained from the beginning in my own sort of background in performance studies, I want to find a ways in which we don't cleave um, organization and sustainability. I want to continue to find those ways from sort of the humanities study or the appreciation of text and performance and the body. Okay, so a lot of my contributions in the department have been about changing the curriculum so that, you know, markets, uh, the systems of support, uh, philanthropy, policy, these all figure into a comprehensive education that really complements and really supports their understanding of text and gives them a deeper sense of it, but also shows how real art is made over time. Um, and that it is done not only through sort of the creative and the uh, scholarly, uh, the intellectual and the artistic, but also through the investment of a lot of people and a lot of resources. So my next project um, with respect to a book, um, and this comes from some work I'm doing for the Ford Foundation right now on um uh, the Ford Foundation was a major supporter of investing in creativity and leveraging investments in creativity. Mm. It was the um, it was the seed funder for LINK um, and plays a big role in ArtPlace America. Um, but I'm looking at specific efforts in these historically marginalized communities or communities responsive to changing demographics, because we have to remember that the U.S. is heading. Towards you know what we've called a historical minority will now be the majority by you know twenty fifty is broad twenty thirty nine it's shifting. Um, I've been looking at sort of the networks established by that, and recognizing that while we use and this is why I ordered networkologies from your podcast, (laughs) but. Really thinking how we've used that term so frequently in, as sort of a way to just sort of get to know somebody and ask them to pass on the word. But there are a system of theories that have to be sort of put forth. And, you know, let's begin to do our mapping, borrowing from the sciences, um, so that we understand what we're actually doing when we're layering services with the anticipation of multiplying them. Multiplying opportunities. Um, what I plan to write on next, and I've begun the research on this, is the gap years, or um, not the gap years. I'm sorry, the um, years of apprenticeship for yeah, yeah. economics. Those first years out of school. Um, from the proposals I put forth on education in this book, I'd like to go forward four years and uh, begin thinking if I were to ask for a certain set of. Um, Capacities and skills that I would want the emerging artists to have. What is the knowledge that they would have to have? How does it? Um, how is it geographical? You know, what what sort of ways of reading community are happening? How is it cultural? What deep understanding of arts and culture? as sort of two that complement each other uh, needs to happen? How is it collaborative in terms of, you know, we have a false sort of uh, distinction between schools of theater and schools of visual arts, Mm -hmm. since most of us have to collaborate once we work, right? Um, How does it need to be sort of multidisciplinary and collaborative? Um, And also, what are the essential networks? So I'm beginning to look at chapters on that, and I want to look at the gap, I'm calling them the gap years, I don't know, the the, the uh, years of apprenticeship as sort of a, a strategic year in, or strategic period in which a person can sort of begin to do this and this and this and not lose hope um, and recognize how what I was trained, what, what I was taught actually does apply here. Um, that's really fascinating to me. I think it will... Re- Require that I look at not only pedagogy historically, but that I will also probably have to draw down data, and then once again reach out to the studies and reports that have done this work variously. Um, another big issue we have in the U.S. is especially the um, use of internships, really as sort of exploitation.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. you
1: know, and yeah, so I, yeah. I have to write extensively about that as well. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is I, I see my um, work. I tried to do an important performing policy. I, I, I hope I succeeded, but, you know, more and more, I, I want it to be read by the more and more the emerging as well as the practicing artist. And it's actually those that I've seen uh, through my work with Link. I was actually one of, Link did a smart thing and had uh, artist advisors at the center. I, and I traveled and looked at training and professional development. But I saw, you know, all across the nation, artists coming back to train on this, right? on this idea of what do I need to know to sort of keep going, right? How do I create a community around this idea of sustainability? Um, I I want to take up those questions and, you know, address them directly to those that are emerging into practice, whether or not they're coming from a higher ed program. So that's the next project. Um, Continuing the work of performing policy also requires that I stay in touch with current initiatives. Uh, And so, And working with a network of um, visual arts organizations as well as alternative art spaces, which again has a big history with the National Endowment, um, as well as a sort of uh, something called the Dance Cloud, which is an online resource for research and opportunities in dance careers. Um, which is taking place as a consortium with a number of universities, UCLA, the Ohio State, Wesleyan, and Texas, as well as a number of really wonderful artists, Liz Lerman, Andrew Simonette. Um, There are several others on there. So, and then also working with something called the Center for Creative Leadership in Houston. Um, I've worked with ArtPlace America. uh, So, and then also some work with the National Performance Network, where I have a big history. Uh, So I'm working across disciplines at this point. Um, Finally, you know, with my partner, we've had a folk art gallery for 28 years. (laughs) And uh, if you ever want to talk about marginalization of art, well, we can talk about folk art. But uh, we're looking at shifting strictly from the... uh, from the uh, commercial model into more of a foundation circumstance, given the fact that we have been doing projects where we have been providing long-term support to certain artists, uh, not through sort of monthly salaries, but supporting them to create works that reflect not a habituation of the market. Oh, well, people buy this, so I want it. But what their vision is and letting them determine the price and then discussing with them what advancing costs Uh, to them early so they can make this work and throughout the process and staying in touch, how that reflects in rents for a for-profit space. So they have a greater understanding of markups and things like that. And we work more closely together. Um, So that's been a project of our gallery since 2005, six. And now that we're closing the space, we're looking at a nonprofit. So I'm actually working across the disciplines uh, just as I imagined. Um, I I promise
0: would. An incredible amount of
1: work.
0: Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Paul Bonin-Rodriguez about performing policy, how contemporary politics and cultural programs redefined U.S. artists for the 21st century.